0: Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum where for 28 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis and moderator of today's program. It is my pleasure to introduce the fourth speaker in our fall series on rebuilding. Hector Tobar is the Mexico City bureau chief for the Los Angeles Times. Before his assignment in Mexico City, he served as the Times bureau chief in Buenos Aires and as its national Latino affairs correspondent. In 2003, he was sent to Baghdad to cover the early days of the Iraqi war, traveling to a remote village to report on the impact of the war on the lives of ordinary Iraqis. He is the recipient of a Pulitzer Prize for his team reporting on the 1992 L.A. riots and an Inter-American Press Association Award for his coverage of Latin America's troubled democracies. He is the author of two books, The Tattooed Soldier, a novel set in the impoverished neighborhoods of central Los Angeles, and Translation Nation, defining a new American identity in the Spanish-speaking United States which the New York Times described as a cross between de Tocqueville's Democracy in America and Che Guevara's Motorcycle Diaries. The son of Guatemalan immigrants, Mr. Tobar was raised in Los Angeles and earned an undergraduate degree at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and an MFA in Creative Writing from the University of California, Irvine. In his presentation today, Mr. Tobar will take us inside diverse and dynamic Latino populations in the United States and explore the impact of the country's fastest growing minority on our culture, politics, and communities. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Hector Tobar.
1: um thank you thank you very much thank you to the town hall forum for uh this wonderful invitation Uh, thank you minister anderson for that wonderful introduction um and it is just a great honor and pleasure to be here in, in minneapolis um now i'm going to talk to you today a little bit about my experience of the past two decades of uh writing about latin americans in the united states and of writing from latin america but first I wanna tell you a little bit about uh, the time that Minnesota first entered my imagination as a native Californian. Um, This is my first trip to Minnesota, but I imagined Minnesota when I was a young adolescent growing up in Los Angeles. In the days before cable television, we got this box that we put on top of our TV. It was called subscription television. And this little box brought really, really cool foreign movies into our home. And I remember one night late by myself, I watched this movie called The Emigrants with Liv Ullman and Max von Sydow. You may remember Liv Ullman, Scandinavian beauty, and uh, she's uh, Norwegian, but in this movie, she played a Swede. And it's been 30 years since I've seen this movie. I tried to uh, rent it on DVD, but it's not on DVD anymore, so all of this is from my memory. And my, my memory of this story is that Liv and, Max, Liv and Max live on a farm in Sweden, and they have a really, really tough life on the farm there because the land that they have in Sweden has pretty much played out. And the scene that I most remember is of Max, the character that Max plays, and he's out there in his farm and he's got his plow with his horse and he's trying to turn up the soil and he's fighting to cut in that soil because there's so much rocks in, so much rocks in that soil. And he comes back and he tells his wife, honey, we can't make it here because this topsoil here is only three inches thick, I'm losing the topsoil. And of course, this means that he can't provide enough food for his family and their young son dies and eventually they make this decision to head on out to America to this new land that they've heard about on the other side of the Atlantic. So they get on a ship and uh, and then on a train after they get to New York in a wagon and they end up here in the Minnesota territory after many trials and tribulations. And they homestead this parcel of land and not long after Max arrives, he goes out with a shovel to check out the new property that he's homesteaded, to see if everything they told him about America is true. He goes out there with a shovel, and he digs into the soil, and he keeps digging and digging and digging, and a few minutes later, he runs back to the tent or the log cabin or whatever it is he's sharing with Liv, and he tells her, honey, the topsoil here is three feet thick. Now, I offer this story as a kind of explanation as to why 150 years after Liv and Max came to Minnesota, so many Mexicans and other Latin American immigrants are coming to this part of the country. Now, the bountiful thing that people come here in search of isn't the topsoil, of course, it's the wages. The minimum wage here in Minnesota, if uh, the internets are correct, uh, is $5.25 for small employers and $6.15 for large companies. Well, what's the minimum wage in Mexico? Well, it's highest highest minimum wage in Mexico is in central Mexico, where I live in Mexico City. There, the minimum wage is a little bit more than 50 pesos, or the equivalent of $4.75 per day. Per day. So when Jose comes from Guanajuato and arrives at the food processing plant here in Minnesota, or when he steps into that restaurant and his new boss tells him, he's gonna be making $5.25 an hour. It won't be long before he rushes to the telephone because he hasn't brought his wife with him. He's left her back home and he calls her and he says, it's true, honey, it's true. Here I can make 500 pesos in a day. And those 500 pesos are like three feet of topsoil to Jose from Guanajuato. In fact, just a couple of hours ago, my first hours here in Minneapolis, I found myself in a fine eating establishment here in downtown Minneapolis. I won't say which one it was, And I started talking to one of the cooks, and he's a guy from Toluca, which is a town just outside of Mexico City. And he arrived here uh, from Mexico just three years ago. In that time, he's learned English, and he's got himself a job at a very good establishment. He's making $12.50 an hour. Now, there are lawyers. That's the average salary of a lawyer in Mexico City. So he um, can make $12, which almost works out to $100 a day, which is an unheard of wage. Uh, in Mexico City. So just like good topsoil offers the promise of a bountiful harvest and the fields that will produce enough food to make your children healthy and tall, these wages here in the United States in places like Los Angeles and liberal Kansas, in Miami and Minneapolis, offer something that's really sorely lacking in Latin America, avenues of social mobility. Now here, we as Americans, we take for granted the idea of social mobility. From Horatio Alger to Barack Obama, our culture is filled with stories of people from humble origins who become rich and powerful. I think you could say that story, that idea of the United States as a place of equal opportunity reinvention is a very strong element in our American identity. We have the pioneers, the 49ers, the Jewish diaspora, the Italian experience, live in Max in Minnesota. Our culture is full of stories of people who've come here and reinvented themselves. Now, I think it's fair to say that despite some advances, social class remains a relatively fixed thing in Mexico, and really in much of Latin America relative to the United States. There aren't that many Horatio Alger type stories in Mexican culture. And you really feel the absence of a middle class in Latin America. I know I did when I lived in Latin America because I'm a middle class American. I lived in a neighborhood uh, in Mexico City where I had barbed wire around my home uh, to keep out the masses because the disparities of wealth and poverty are so great in Mexico City, there really isn't, uh, there's a very, very small middle class. And so you're almost always confronted with poverty right outside your front door, thus the electric wires. You may not appreciate appreciate it because you've lived here all your lives, most of you, but we Americans, generally speaking, grew up with a more egalitarian and fluid idea of what social class is, especially if we live in a large American city. In the United States, we have now a black middle class. We have a Latino middle class. We have an Asian middle class. In Mexico, however, there's an elaborate set of language and cultural cues that separate the haves from the have-nots. And part of it is racial, it's ethnic. Uh, My wife and I, for example, lived in this neighborhood in Mexico City, Lomas de Chapultepec. And my wife is a native Angelino, a Mexican-American, a Chicana. This is what, she's what Mexicans call a pocha, someone who looks Mexican but doesn't really speak Spanish very well, who's from the United States. She's also what Mexicans call a mestiza, which literally means mixed, part Indian and part European. But really what mestiza means in Mexico means dark. Right. So my wife is this beautiful cinnamon-skinned woman, and she's walking around our neighborhood in Chapultepec in her California bohemian wardrobe. She's got her Santa Fe jewelry and her shoes that she ordered from Sapo's online. And it doesn't matter because people don't see that. They don't see those visual cues that you and I understand, identify a middle-class American. They don't see that. They see her race. Should she walk around our neighborhood, and people will say to her, Are you a live-in or a day employee? In other words, they think she's a maid, obviously. Because it wasn't part of the experience of the people who look like my wife are actual residents of that fancy neighborhood. I told this story again and again, and a friend of ours came up with an excellent word that describes Mexican society. It's a pigmentocracy. my wife recently attained a PhD in history and, and she was working on this PhD while we lived in Mexico City. And I, I told one of the women that was working for us, her name was Maria Isabel, you know, please don't bother my wife. When you see her there at the computer, she's working on her dissertation. She has to finish it in too much. She's getting her PhD. And this one, Maria Isabel, is a little bit older than us, you know, looked a lot like us. And she, I, I would tell her, my wife is working on her PhD. And she would say, oh, yes, senor, senor, I understand. And she looked at me like I was deluded. She couldn't really believe that this woman who looked like her was working on a PhD. That's very nice, senor, she would say. And then finally, uh, last December, my wife actually got her, uh, she finished her dissertation, she got her PhD, we went to Phoenix, Arizona, to Arizona State University, took pictures of her in a cap and gown, brought them back to Mexico City, and I showed Maria Isabel this photograph of my wife in her cap and gown with a diploma, and it finally registered registered to her that what I was saying was true. And she almost broke down crying. And She said, ay, senor, when I was a girl, I wanted so much to study. I mean, she's a very smart woman, you know, but she had been denied that opportunity because she grew up in a rural village in a state of Hidalgo outside of Mexico. And much of her girlhood and young womanhood was absorbed with being a wage earner in her family, right? Now, maybe 50% of Mexico has the same pigment skin pigment, as my wife and as Maria Isabel. And um, for most of those people, like for Maria Isabel, the avenues of social mobility are pretty closed off, even though there's, nev- you know, there's not really officially sanctioned discrimination in Mexico, and there hasn't been for uh, almost a century, right? Um, and even though there are institutions that exist that allow people to sort of escape their circumstances, right, um, for example, Mexico has an excellent public university system. The tuition is just pennies per day. It's practically free. But no university pays you to study, and thus no university can make up to your family the loss of your income, which is why people can't study and why people can't exceed their circumstances. In Mexico, a family, a poor family, is like a farm, and each child is like a field. And a family needs its wage earners the way a farmer needs his fields. And in the same sense that a poor farmer can't afford to let a field go fallow, most families can't give up the income of an employable adult. Obligation to family is a very powerful force in Mexican society. And in fact, I would say it's maybe even stronger in Mexico than it is in the United States. That's why, despite the fact that Mexico is a much poorer country than the United States, you hardly ever see any homeless people in Mexican cities and why the um, retirement home is practically non-existent in Mexico because everyone moves in with a family. No matter how poor you are, how desperate your situation are, chances are you have a relative you can go bother and live in their house with them and they can take care of you. Now it also means, it works both ways, it also means that if you live in a poor family with five or six siblings, the older siblings, and especially the daughters, very often work to produce the extra income to educate, to pay for the education of the younger siblings and sometimes even the grandchildren. Now, my wife and I saw this firsthand because we had a person working in our house who was doing precisely that. Her name was Benita and we paid her 1500 pesos a week. That's $150. This made her, that relatively humble wage of $150 a week made her an affluent person in her village. Uh, and her village is called Temoaya. It's on the outskirts of Toluca. It's a town of squat cement houses with a rather large whitewashed church surrounded by cornfields and grazing horses and cows, and a big population in that place still speaks Otomi. Now, the way family worked for Benita, who lived in that place on the weekends, was that her younger sister took care of her daughter, of Benita's daughter. Benita was a, a single mother. Uh, she had a daughter with a guy in the village who everyone knew who he was, but he had never recognized his daughter. So Benita left her young little girl, like maybe about two years old, with her sister. The younger sister takes care of the daughter so Benita could travel to Mexico City and work on our house, right, and earn that 1,500 peso salary. Um, our house, Mexico City, was three hours away from Benita's village, so she really couldn't commute every day. So she would stay with us in a little apartment, that we little room that we have in the back. It's de rigueur for Mexican uh, upper-class families to have servants' quarters in their houses. It's built into the architecture. Even the apartments have servant quarters. So Benita lived with us, and her mission in life was to save up enough money to pay for her daughter's high school education, because Benita had only gotten up to fourth or fifth grade. Her dream was to get her daughter to high school. At the same time, Benita was saving that really good salary that she was making to pay for her younger brother to go to college. He was the first person in her family to go to college and he was about to finish his uh, law school career. He was about to become a lawyer. Um, Now, And in order to earn that money, she had to leave her village once a week, travel three hours to Mexico City, and live with us. And millions of people in Mexico City do this. They commute from the literally hundreds of towns and villages that surround the federal district, which is where Mexico City is, in the states of Morelos, Hidalgo, Guanajuato, and they come to jobs in the city. So, in Mexico, in rural Mexico especially, social mobility requires actual mobility. Very often, you have, to leave, you have to leave the place where you are to get someplace. Pun completely intended, right? You have to leave the place, your hometown, to get someplace in the idea of becoming more than what you are, right? So the recent history of, and in fact, that's really the only sociable, acceptable way to escape your circumstances, really, is to, is to migrate to either the city of Mexico City or to the United States. And the recent social history of Mexico, the history of the last two generations generations—has been dominated by these cycles of migration from the provinces to big cities like Mexico City, Guadalajara, and from the cities and rural areas like Zacatecas to the United States. Now, as we know, millions of people from Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, and other countries have arrived here uh, in places like Los Angeles and and Minneapolis. And it's fair to say that their personal ambition, their desire to change their lives by moving, has changed the look and feel of many corners of the United States. Now it's been my professional privilege to watch this process as it unfolds across the U.S. as it has unfolded across the U.S. for the last 20 years. From Los Angeles where I grew up, I grew up in a very different Los Angeles. I grew up in a Los Angeles where Latinos were a small minority uh, to now living in this Los Angeles that is a Latino majority city where Spanish language television and radio stations are the highest rated stations in any language in in the market. And I've seen that spread from Los Angeles to Rupert, Idaho to Memphis, Tennessee to Atlanta, Georgia. Um, And I can tell you that The process of Latino migration and the process of Latino acculturization into these places always fit the same pattern. And probably a pattern I think you're seeing here in Minnesota. First, there's the honeymoon phase. Golly, these people work hard, right? That's sort of what a lot of people say. How do we ever get anything done without these people, right? There's a sort of earnestness that the recently arrived immigrant has that employers really like. And then they start filling up the churches and people say, God, I went to mass the other day and I couldn't get a seat. Right? They revitalize the church. And there's a lot of things about a small Latino community that are really not not non-threatening. It's sort of something new. Um, You know, uh, there are a lot of things that people really appreciate about a Latino community when it's small, when it's new. Second comes the phase when these new arrivals uh, start to get settled in and institutions start to appear. First there's the inevitable appearance of really good Mexican restaurants. Suddenly, you can get a good plate of enchiladas de mole in Nebraska, right? Uh, And then comes the soccer league and the Spanish radio station, and finally leaders emerge. Um, There's the appearance of what I call in my book, Translation Nation, the citizen one. That's the first person in a Latino and immigrant community to catch the fever of the idea of Citizenship, and I don't mean that in the legal sense of the word. I mean in the sense of being a member of your community, the person who goes out to circulate the petition, the person who goes out to organize the soccer league and say, okay, if we're going to have a soccer league, we just can't all show up here all, all amontonados on top of each other uh, on the weekends. We have to have rules. We have to have a referee. Uh, we have to have an association. We have to go out and talk to the city. Uh, you know, that, that is very often one of the first organizations you'll see appear in a new, uh, in a new community is the soccer league. Um, so that happens and that's very um, uplifting for people to see uh, Latin Americans behaving like Americans, Latin Americans adopting that American ethos of reinvention. But then comes the third phase, which is the pushback, the reaction, the backlash. And this is when the locals start to come to the ter- with terms with the depth of the cultural change that take- that's taking place around them. Um, suddenly the neighborhood doesn't look the same anymore, right? Um, uh, it's not just the language, it's the signs, and it's also the way people act. You know, the Latino community is a complicated community and has social problems, and all of a sudden there's like these uh, disaffected adolescents lurking about, right? And they have, uh, you know, the police department has to make calls to LA and say, what are these signs that these kids are making? I don't understand what this is, right? What's that tattoo about? What is this graffiti about? And so people start local people I think very uh, have a very very natural reaction which is uh, they respond to this change and they feel uh, they feel it's threatening they feel they don't quite understand what's going on around them and that has fed across the country uh, the backlash to Latino immigration it's created a whole career uh, for Lou Dobbs it's occupied hours and hours on Fox News it's spread around the United States and then finally comes the final stage, which has happened in California. It's happened in, in Florida, but it hasn't quite happened in the rest of the country yet, which is acceptance. You know, uh, in California, I think uh, the, Latino, uh, the Latino population is so big and has so much political power now that it's sort of suppressed the anti-immigrant movement. It's still strong, but the anti-immigrant movement is in retreat because of the power of organized uh, uh, Latino political participation. Um, but across the country this pushback is still taking place and it really dates back to the 1990s in California. Um, and because of that uh, pushback, because of that backlash, the whole immigrant experience has changed in the United States and is changing right now in, in our time. What it means to be an immigrant now in 2008 is different than it was even just in 1980. Right? Um, let, allow me to explain my own experience, for example. My, My father came from Guatemala in 1962 and he got his tourist visa, arrived on a Pan-American Airlines flight from Guatemala City, after a few months applied for residency and eventually became a U.S. citizen. So he never really feels like he broke any law, although he really probably did overstay his tourist visa, right? Then in the 1980s, in 70s and 80s, more and more people started coming, and you really couldn't do that anymore, you know, if you were from Guatemala. But what you could do is you could go to Mexico and get on a bus and go to Tijuana. And you go to the, to the border in Tijuana, and you would gather there at dusk, and there would be thousands of other people, hundreds of other people like you at the fence waiting for the sun to go down, and then you would all run across in mass. I mean, I've seen pictures from the Border Patrol from this period, and it looks sort of like an immigrant Woodstock you know, people are all gathered in this field waiting for the sun to go down, and everybody just sort of runs, and most people get in. Most people got in. And, and so if you went through that experience, like my father did, or like the people in the 80s, you have, it's sort of like, you don't really feel like you did anything wrong, right? And so you're not left with a, uh, it was kind of a game. So the border crossing didn't really leave a mark on you. What left a mark on you about the experience was leaving behind your home, was saying goodbye to everybody you knew and knowing that you probably wouldn't be coming back very often, that you were starting a new life. That was what was traumatic about the immigrant experience in the 60s and 70s and 80s, right? Well, how do people cross now? Well, you know, uh, the the border in San Isidro has been pretty much sealed up. Uh, There's a chapter about it in my book, Translation Nation, about the television cameras, the Earthquake, they use seismic uh, detectors to detect when people are passing, uh, they have thermo sensors, night vision goggles. The, the border, at the most popular crossing places, has been militarized, which forces people to go out into the desert. And what it also forces people to do is it forces them to contract with a criminal enterprise to cross the border. And if you come from Central America, you really have to contract with maybe three different criminal enterprises to get to the United States. Um, because you can't do that easy crossing, you have to go into the desert in Arizona, and that requires you paying a coyote, a smuggler. Uh, pollero is another term that's used. Uh, that literally means chicken, chicken rounder up or chicken rustler, right? I got a sort of a, a, a first hand look at what this experience was like, uh, or rather a more intimate look. When one of the women who had worked in our house in Mexico City, Juana, uh, came to us one day, she had stopped working for us because she had a baby, and she came back and she said she had to borrow some money. And she says, "Uh, Senora, she told my wife, "Um, my husband, he went to go get a job in New York. You know, he left for New York. He had somebody waiting for him with a job in New York City, but the person who crossed him uh, now has him in a house in Arizona, and he wants $3,000 or he's not letting him go. Can you please lend us... $500. I'm going she's going around to all the people she knows to round up the money to pay this ransom to the smuggler. Um, and someone who crosses from Guatemala is going to have to pay that smuggler and also is going to have to pay someone to help them cross the Mexico Guatemala border because that border has suddenly been tightened up because the Mexican authorities are getting tired of being criticized in the international press about not having control over their southern border so they've sent out patrols. And the worst thing about crossing now, coming here, if you've come from Central America, is that you used to have this railroad that functioned in southern Mexico, That, took, that it was a railroad that, that ran basically from the Yucatan Peninsula to the center of the country and from Chiapas to the center of the country, and that railroad went bankrupt and doesn't run anymore, so people can't jump on the railroad cars anymore to get this free ride that they would take from Guatemala to central Mexico all the way up to the border, so they have to walk hundreds of miles. And I met some of the people who were doing this walk, Honduran central, Honduran immigrants and other Central American immigrants. So now this crossing, which before was kind of a game, has now become this tr- trauma for people. And in my book, in Translation Nation, I, I quote Alexis de Tocqueville, who says that, um, that uh, the crossing, that the, the journey that people undertake to go to, to a place. In his case, he was writing about the Pilgrims. Uh, he was writing about the United States and he said that the journey that the Pilgrims took to New England shaped American identity. The hardships that they went through shaped the idea of who they were as Americans. And he said in his book that um, the entire man is so to speak to be seen in the cradle of the child. The growth of a nation bears something analogous to this. They all bear some marks of their origin. The circumstances that accompanied their birth and contributed to the development affected the whole term of their being. So for example, here in, in Minnesota, that story of the immigrants, which was uh, in a novel, a famous novel from that period, um, that story is, forms part of people's idea of who they are as Americans, that journey of, of, of many people who live in, in this part of the country. The, now there are many people who are living among us who are planning to live here the rest of their lives, who the story of their arrival is, uh, I survived three days in the desert with a madman who is holding me for rents. And I think that shapes a very different vision of what it will eventually mean to be an American for that person than it does for my father or for someone who came here in the 1980s. And I think that really now we are at a crossroads uh, in American history because we really have now literally hundreds of thousands, millions of people living among us who are de facto Americans. That is, that they've, uh, you know, had ch- they're, they've, they're raising children here, they're paying their taxes, they're growing up here, they're eventually going to high school and college here, and they don't have citizenship. In California, you see this more, but uh, you see it also in other parts of the country where you can go and talk to someone who speaks English as their first language, Spanish as their second language, and who is all to all intents and purposes and appearances an American, but who will tell you secretly in a whisper, um, no, you know, I don't have my papers. That's why I, I couldn't get uh, in-state tuition at the University of California. I can't go to college. I can't do this. I can't become a police officer because I'm not a citizen. So every year that passes without an immigration reform, we are increasing the number of people in our country who live in that sort of very strange uh, in-between status of being de facto Americans without being de jure Americans, de jure Americans, and as I pointed out in other talks, the last time that we lived in such a situation in the United States was uh, before the Civil War because we had a big pool of labor, highly exploited labor, of people who were de facto Americans who, who were not citizens in the eye of the law. Of course, that was slavery and that was African Americans. Dred Scott versus Sanford declared that a, white man had, no, a black man had no rights that a white man was bound to respect. And we eventually had a civil war in this country, and we had the 13th Amendment and all the other laws that were passed uh, during Reconstruction to incorporate these de facto Americans as, full, uh, as Americans in, uh, in all the senses of the law. And it still took a century. It took a century for those millions of people to uh, finally be fully incorporated into the American polity by uh, the Civil Rights Act and by the Voting Rights Act of 1965. 100 years from 1865, the end of the Civil War, to 1965 and the Voting Rights Act. And I fear that we could spend a century where we have uh, hundreds of thousands and millions of people living among us who are de facto Americans who grew up uh, you know, uh, in Fargo, in Minnesota, in Milwaukee, in Los Angeles, thinking, you know, uh, going to, to hockey matches, going to soccer matches, going to play baseball, and who are not really Americans in the eyes of the law. And I think that's a situation that, uh, that is dangerous for the United States. It's a situation that eats away at our institutions. And that is a situation that needs to be remedied. Because um, we have to renew that promise uh, to that population. We have to strengthen uh, our joint collective American identity uh, by doing the right thing and recognizing that people who live and work among us, who've, who've toiled, who've built our homes, uh, cleaned our homes, um, uh, have a right uh, to live among us as uh, with the rights uh, of Americans. And I hope that, um, uh, that you will all um, work in some way or another to help that come true one day and uh, thank you very much for having me. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Hector Tovar. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is journalist and author Hector Tobar. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience at Westminster, I'd like to thank the forum's many supporters, especially the co-sponsor of today's event, the Minnesota International Center. I invite you to join us here at Westminster for our next forum on Thursday, November 13th, in two weeks, when political commentator David Brooks will join us and now Hector Tobar if you would return to the pulpit I will present the questions from our audience this is the time of our nation's uh, political season when we're electing new leadership any comments on uh, priorities for the new president in regard to immigration issues
1: well as I said at the end of my talk I think there's um, a strong need for an immigration reform in this country I think um, you know uh, no one would disagree with the fact that the United States um, needs and should have secure borders and uh, but at the same time I think that uh, we we are facing an increasing uh, socioeconomic contradiction that's very large which is that contradiction of having uh, this large pool of of labor that we've recruited invited enticed to come uh, to the United States and yet who uh, are increasingly marginalized in American society and uh, I think that uh, to live in a community where uh, you're uh, inundated uh, in the media with images of people who are like you being led away in handcuffs and raids and whatnot is uh, it's just not a good uh, situation for the United States. At the same time, I think there needs to be, uh, I think the Mexican government, uh, Mexican society needs to take, um, needs to take uh, very dramatic measures uh, to stem the, out, ex, the exodus from its own country. I think it's a disaster for Mexico. I think in the long term, uh, mass migration is more of a threat to Mexican national identity than it is to the United States national identity because um, when you allow your most ambitious people uh, to leave uh, by the tens of thousands and the millions, it's, um, it's not good for your, for your country and there needs to be serious uh, economic and social reform. So I hope whoever the next president is will engage in this dialogue um, with the Mexican government and that that debate become uh, part of the um, uh, of the national debate here in the United States and also in Mexico you think a guest worker program which this country has had in the past
0: with a three-year special workers card would be a good idea with a free return to Mexico anytime during that period and after three years they would have to go back again to register for the card
1: I think that that would be, that would bring a little bit more order to the process, although I think that in practice a lot of people would not return when their three years are up. Unless there was, uh, you know, I mean that was the whole hope of NAFTA, was that NAFTA would make Mexico into what China has become, right? But it didn't quite work out that way because China happened. You know, there are Mexican shoemakers who complain about uh, Chinese shoes coming into their market. So I think... um, unless we resolve the sort of greater socio-economic global, the contradictions of the global economy, that those kinds of measures will bring a little bit more order to the process, um, allow a lot of people to, you know, quote, unquote, come out of the shadows, but it really would be sort of a band-aid for the larger problems that we face. Presidente Vicente Fox recognized a special
0: responsibility for Mexicans living in the U.S. Does the current Mexican president share that view, or what about other Latin American nations and their leaders?
1: Yes, I think that um, President Calderon has made it, um, uh, it's something that helps, that actually something that unifies the Mexican people, right and left. Uh, Right and left, Mexican people are united by the idea that their paisanos, their countrymen living in the United States, are suffering abuse uh, in the United States and need to be defended. And therefore, the Mexican government has in, has uh, invested uh, tremendously in a system of consulates, that uh, in a system of actually providing people with drivers' li- oh, with with, uh, with identification cards and other other documentation that allows them to have a more uh, stable life in the United States. And they've spoken out in defense of the rights of. Uh, of of migrants. But at the same time I I don't really see that debate in Mexico about the origins. There's just, Mexico is a politically divided country. Here we have you know red states and blue states. There it's blue states and yellow states because the northern part of the country is controlled by the conservative uh, or dominated by the conservative National Action Party and the southern part of the country, the poor part of the country is dominated by the leftist PRD and they have diametrically opposed ideas of how to move Mexico forward and um, I, uh, I don't see them being resolved anytime soon. Uh, you referred already to NAFTA.
0: Just go deeper there. Is NAFTA viewed generally in Mexico as a good, a good uh, agreement between the two nations uh, between North America and Latin America? What about the income disparities between US and Mexico? Has NAFTA helped those or exacerbated them?
1: Um, once again there Are tremendous disagreements about NAFTA Calderon uh, is a very very strong backer of NAFTA and he will cite figures our tomato industry is booming because we export all these tomatoes uh, to the United States but if you look at Mexican agriculture especially and the staples of Mexican agriculture which is corn right I've had the experience of visiting corn farmers in both Nebraska and in Oaxaca and uh, suffice it to say, it's a very dramatic difference. You know, the corn farmer I met in Nebraska had this wonderful, you know, John Deere combine that had a GPS tracking system and computer attached to it. And it measured the soil humidity, and so he always had to sort of read out at the end of the day you know, where his field stood in terms of humidity and nitrogen and everything. And, uh, you know, the Mexican farmer, he's got uh, a burrow and a plow and his six kids helping him, you know. And, um, and I think, in fact, that's now uh, one of the, uh, I don't know if it's an apocryphal story, but it's a story you hear again and again in in rural Mexico is, um, I I went to go get tortillas because in Mexico, you take the grain of corn and you take it to the mill and the mill grinds it up and makes, you know, corn flour for tortillas, which is the staple of, you know, Mexico. And the, the, the story you hear again and again is that of people going to the mill and seeing yellow corn. Because in Mexico, people grow kind of a white corn and the yellow corn is coming from the United States. You know, they're making the tortillas. I mean, this is sort of sacrilege, you know, uh, in, in Mexico. So I think, um, I think that there, uh, there is an, a, an element of Mexican society that sees NAFTA as a boon for Mexican manufacturing, uh, you know, for the Mexican auto industry. Uh, for certain uh, exports, I- agricultural exports, but there's another maybe even larger segment of Mexican society that sees it as a complete disaster for Mexican agriculture, and one of the causes that's led so many people to leave rural Mexico to, the, to go to the United States because they simply can't, they, you know, and now this year, the last year was the first year that American corn came in without quotas into, the, into Mexico. And, and that was a, a seminal event in, in, in Mexicans, Mexico's recent history because people were so concerned about this American corn. A couple questions about Latino
0: participation in political process. Uh, do Latinos who are here in the U.S. participate as citizens in their home countries by absentee or some other kind of voting mechanism?
1: Oh, yes, definitely. Um, in fact, um, one of the things that I noticed in many of the countries I covered, I covered elections in Argentina and Brazil and Bolivia, Guatemala, El Salvador, Mexico, is that it's sort of a a, uh, required de rigueur thing to make your trip to Washington. First of all, to meet all the think tanks. And secondly, I mean, for any, um, any Latin American politician, he has to go to Washington, meet all the think tanks, but then he also has to go to the Latino communities and meet the Latino communities in Miami, uh, in Los Angeles, in Houston and Dallas and raise money. Uh, Mexico now, uh, Mexico in its most recent election permitted voting from abroad. So um, it, it is something where people um, follow the process and they tend, it's very interesting because the, the voters in Mexico, the Mexican voters in the United States tended to be more conservative than, than, than the general Mexican voter, which I found kind of interesting. But yes, there is definitely a lot of participation. And in this
0: country there, of course, have been Latinos as citizens since the earliest days of the nation, in the southwest particularly. Uh, are they participating in elections? What about their impact? Do they go one way or another in terms of political parties?
1: Well, I mean, um, in California now, California's uh, political landscape has changed as a result of Proposition 187, which was uh, the proposition in, 19, in the 1990s the initiative to, uh, to um, prohibit uh, undocumented immigrants, illegal immigrants, from receiving certain uh, public services, education, hospitals, etc. This was eventually overturned by the courts. It passed, but it was overturned by the courts. But what it led to was a backlash among Latinos. There were many people who had lived uh, as legal residents in the United States for decades, who got so scared by that initiative, they decided to go out and register to vote. So Proposition One Eighty Seven in California led to a Massive growth in the voter rolls in California to such an extent, as I said during my talk, that really Latinos have become part, a very, very powerful part of the political equation in California and also now in Arizona and New Mexico. Now, what we saw during the primaries I thought was really interesting because Latinos voted overwhelmingly for uh, Hillary uh, in California. And people will say, well, what is it? Are they racist against Barack Obama? Is it because they'll never vote for a black person or whatever? And a lot of people were spinning that story that way. But I, to me, it was more about practicality. And it was that Latino voters tended to be working class people. And like working class people, they have a very practical notion of what a leader should look like. So you had Barack Obama, who was the uh, you know, idealist, the dreamer, without much experience, and yet Hillary, who had been first lady, you know, senator from New York, and some people sort of saw her as the more tested person. And I think that's why she uh, won handily. In fact, the Latino vote gave uh, Hillary Clinton California. Uh, the California, uh, that was what put her over the top. She lost, I think, among white voters, and she lost, obviously, among black voters, but she won among Hispanics, which gave her uh, the California primary. Now, in... Uh, the general election, of course, at first there was a question Will Latinos support Barack Obama? And of course the answer is yes. I mean, it's now 60 30 of people, uh, of Latino people backing Barack Obama. His story, uh, most people know it uh, as an immigrant story. I mean, I was telling uh, someone the other day that my father, who's a Guatemalan immigrant, you know, read dreams from my father and came up to me and said, This, this is my story. This is my story. His story is my story. You know, and he felt a real identification with Barack Obama. My father gave $5 to Barack Obama's campaign six months ago and now feels that he's an integral member of the campaign <laughs> and uh, has gotten onto the internet and is following every day and I was able to turn off my BlackBerry now so I can stop getting those messages about the latest polls from Ohio and Wisconsin. So I think that there is a real identification uh, in a lot of a- uh, corners of the community with, uh, with a Democratic candidate in this election.
0: Is there a variation among Latino voters in the U.S., say from the West Coast to New York or to Florida or other parts of the nation, also variation on their countries of origin from
1: Oh, South yes. It's a, it's a very, um, it's very, okay, California, so the Southwest is mostly Mexican immigration and Central American immigration, people from Guatemala and El Salvador. The Texas is uh, obviously mostly Mexican immigration, but also a back and forth. I mean, in southern Texas, there was a long tradition of people living on both sides of the border, having family on both sides of the border, sometimes having two families, one on each side of the border. Uh, and then, of course, the uh, Miami uh, has always been Cuban and Caribbean and South American immigration and um, New York, uh, Dominican, Puerto Rican. But what's interesting is that uh, traveling in the middle of the country, you would see these different roads converge. And I write in the, in the uh, epilogue of my, of my book, Translation Nation, of going to uh, Northern Alabama and going to uh, a Catholic church Bible study session and meeting a Puerto Rican, a Guatemalan, a Cuban, and a Mexican. And they had all sort of met there in this crossroads of migration. And so I would say that here in the Midwest, there's always been a very, very strong uh, Mexican uh, migration. And, um, but of course, you know, you have now this diaspora from almost every corner of Latin America. Um, so it is a very diverse population. Politically, the, um, F- South Florida tended to be very conservative, very Republican, because they had the uh, legacy of having escaped from Castro's Cuba. But even there, that, that's changing. So uh, it's a, commu- a community in the process of a political evolution.
0: What impact have faith communities had on the uh, immigration of people from Latin America?
1: Well, the impact on immigration is that, you know, it offers people a place that they can come to that feels familiar. Once again, going to my, uh, back to my experience in rural Alabama, I remember, and um, uh, rural Georgia, uh, going to uh, a small community where I actually lived as a, as a, you know, as a faux migrant, you know, pretending undercover, and going to a little church that they, you know, had built, which was a church about the size of a trailer in, uh, in this county in, uh, near Ashland, Alabama, Clay County, Alabama. And that church offered people uh, a place, and people were very, very poor. I went to the Mass, and, you know, people looked like they had just, you know, uh, stepped out a farm worker, and, you know, it was a very, very poor community. And then you, tra- you could just travel an hour to uh, Dalton, Georgia, and the community there was a little older, a little bit more affluent, And they had originally started in a little Catholic church downtown, and the community got so big and so economically powerful that they built a brand new church that I would say was maybe about half the size of this church, it was a a temple. And they had built a new uh, statue to the Virgin of Guadalupe out front, and it was this thriving um, community, and the church was the symbol of their wealth. You know, it was a symbol of their affluence of their accomplishment. We built this, right? So the church is uh, an extremely important institution in, uh, in immigrant communities.
0: Is there any sense of competition between uh, other minorities in this country and uh, Latinos?
1: Well, um, one of the things that I've noticed uh, since my reporting in the, in, in the uh, late 80s is that Latino communities tend to uh, appear where there are black communities. And it's because I think um, well first of all, you know black communities are very accepting of outsiders, you know, just generally speaking and um, and the rents are tend to be low uh, lower in 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 these communities, whether it be south central Los Angeles or uh, in, in the in the poor parts of Dalton, Georgia or in Memphis and you know I think that my first experience of covering the convergence of this black and Latino community was one of that people sort of were existing in parallel universes, you know, and it was, uh, you know, like the Latinos would go to their church and they would do their thing and the blacks would do their thing and they never really even were aware of each other. And then only in the last decade or so has there begun to be, uh, you know, uh, serious on the ground Latino black conflict in Los Angeles. Um, There was also a period where a lot of black community leaders were expressing concern about, um, uh, about, the effect of undocumented immigrants on the workforce and what it was doing to wages. Um, And I think that one of my missions personally as a son of uh, Guatemalan immigrants is to, whenever I speak before a Latino community, is to number one, uh, and I don't think our community is doing this enough, but number one, uh, explain to people American history and the role of African Americans in redefining and broadening the definition of American citizenship. I mean, I almost feel like I'm speaking in euphemisms. You know, people died, right? In the civil rights movement, in civil war. And, and we have, if we have any rights as Latinos, it's because African American people suffered for all of us. And I think that there isn't enough of that kind of education going on, personally. And I, that's one of my missions. In, and in my book, that's why in my book, I quote uh, a lot from W.B. Du Bois and the souls of black folk, so that I, because I see those parallels in the American experience, and I think that, um, that we need to strengthen those, those ties between our communities. Your recent book is
0: Translation Nation. What do you think about the English-only trend, where we wouldn't need translation? <laughs> you may respond in Spanish or English.
1: Uh-huh. Well, you know, I think um, I love English. I mean, it's the, I, mean I, I know that my first words when I was a baby must, were in Spanish, but English is the language that I was educated in. And um, in fact, I, I've always felt um, that I came to English, even, even with that, I felt like, like I was always in the process of mastering English. And even now in my 40s, you know, I recently took up Shakespeare because I felt, you know, God, I never really, my public schools, I was never really introduced uh, to, to Shakespeare, and I now write in this language, and I have to read the masters, you know? And um, so I, I think that that English is the language, even in e- every community, every immigrant community, English is the language of success and ambition. If you don't know English, you're not going to get anywhere. And so that guy that I met today at that restaurant, I made 12, 15 hour, having been here just three years, it was because he was in a position where he dealt with customers and he could speak in English. That's why he was getting $12.50 an hour, and also because he made a really killer omelet, right? So the killer omelet and the English together, that's a good combination. So I think that there is a real hunger uh, to learn to learn English, but I think that there's a recognition that in every community, if you have a 1,000 people come, there's gonna be a few people who really are gonna struggle. You know, it's sort of a thing, it's a, it's a thing that, there are people who are good with language and there are people who are not so good with language. And so in California, there are people who live, uh, who live, who've who lived 60 years in the United States, like my, my wife's uh, grandmother who's 80-something years old and Spanish is still her first language. She's had you know, six kids, 15 or so grandchildren. She has great-grandchildren and yet Spanish is her uh, dominant language. And, and, and that, the, bilingualism exists for people like her. For people who have really put a lot of toil, given a lot to the United States, but just really had a little problem learning English. And so, you know, let's make it a little easier for a person like that. Let's, let's, you know, let's have the fire exit say salida too. So in case she has to get to the fire exit when there's a fire, she knows where to go. (laughs) You know, that's... That's, I think, why bilingualism is a, is a good thing, but I think also that, um, that everyone who arrives here wants to learn English. It's a question of how, 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 well they, how quickly they learn it. You have traveled and reported extensively all over Latin America. How would
0: you summarize the hopes of Latin Americans for our nation in the U.S.? What do you hear in
1: Latin America toward America? Well, it's really interesting. I, I arrived in... I left Los Angeles and I, uh, two weeks after September 11th, and we traveled to Buenos Aires, Argentina, and the Argentines, you know, are uh, notoriously how should I put it, uh, proud, and um, and yet, you know, I you know I arrived as an American, and then find out I was an American. They oh, go, "Are you okay?" You know, I mean, it was like this outpouring of sympathy for the United States, um, and uh, and one felt, you know, really proud of being. Uh, uh, the son of a democracy and what that democracy stood for and its proud history, and then of course, you know, over the next several years, you know, one saw all of the, all of that goodwill uh, melt away. Um, and living in Latin America, you know, uh, people would sort of talk to you about the United States and it's like, what you know, what is going on up there? You know, what are you doing? You're in this war, and the Iraq War really, really hurt. Uh, I mean, I I know many of you know this, but the Iraq War hurt America's image in Latin America tremendously. Um, It also made the United States less powerful in Latin America because, um, you know, I think that Latin American leaders got the sense that, you know, the the empire was a little distracted, you know. Uh, We used to be, I mean, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, uh, I don't think he could have um, amassed as much power as he has in the region if it were not for the relative weakness of U.S. foreign policy uh, these last few years because we've been tied down uh, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, so, um, you know, the, the, I think that, um, that people have a lot of respect and admiration for American democratic institutions and traditions, they aspire to have, in, in Latin America they call it transparency, you know, uh, where you can uh, you know, have a pretty good idea of what your leaders are up to um, and they, they don't have that yet. I mean, you know, uh, it, I, I've written lots and lots of stories about even just things like public records being available, and, and, and Latin Americans are really trying to emulate, emulate that part of the American experience of creating those kinds of institutions. At the same time, there's a real, mis- people are really mystified with our foreign policy, so that's a complicated answer to the question. Thank you, Hector Tobar. Okay, thank you. Thank you.